Good morning, everybody. And if you have a copy of God's Word, you can join me in Exodus chapter 12. If you're not quite familiar with how to find that, go to the right to the front of your Bible. The first book is Genesis. The second is Exodus. Go to the 12th chapter. Uh, we're going to look at a lot of different texts today, a number of which will be popping up on the screen, so there's no reason for you to try to keep up with all of that unless you want to. Uh, but chapter 12 is where we're going to find and, and, and focus, for the most part, uh, in our day. If you're a guest with us and you're just walking in and wondering what in the world have I stepped into the middle of, you've stepped into the middle of a series that we're in and will be in until mid-June called The Story, where we're basically moving from Genesis to Revelation, from the start of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and we're trying to cover that in about six months. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture at all, you know there's 66 books, tens of thousands of words. There's no way we're going to cover every word in that amount of time. But we want to fly at about a 30,000-foot level of altitude and kind of let you see the mountaintops that connect the larger story of Scripture with all those smaller stories that you read. So the aim is, by the time we get to the end, members of our church family and those of you that join us along the way will be able to understand better what you're reading when you look at the Scripture. So if you're looking at one of the prophets or you're reading one of Paul's letters in the New Testament, you'll have a better understanding of how that fits within that larger narrative. All right, That's where we find ourselves, in the middle of that. It began, or we began several weeks ago, where Scripture begins. The Bible tells us that in the beginning... There was one and only one God, and that He created the heavens and the earth, that He created men and women in His image and likeness, that that came, first of all, through our first parents, Adam and Eve, and He placed those two in the garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to fulfill their purpose, which was to bring Him glory and enjoy fellowship with Him forever in in a world of perfection. But very, very early in the story, our enemy, Satan, who is a serpent, who will be revealed to Satan later on in the text of Scripture, is revealed. And he sells our first parents on a false narrative, a false story, a false gospel of self-reliance, self-assurance. The result is they rebel against God. They are removed from the garden, banished from it, placed outside of it. And ever since then, you and I have been uh, living in and been forced to live in a world outside the garden, which means it's less than perfect. Far less than perfect. And is that act of rebellion that continues in your heart and mind and every human being who's ever lived in human history that explains why the world we live in is as jacked up as it is. But thankfully God said, even in the earliest chapters of Genesis, I'm not going to leave it that way. I'm going to send someone. And that was described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. He said, I'm going to execute warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. In other words, I'm going to send someone through the womb of this woman. Eventually, someone's going to come. They're going to come. They're going to be human. They're going to be God. But I'm going to send this individual, and they're going to fix this. They're going to set everything back in its right order. And so everything else that we read from beginning to the end of Scripture is about the fulfillment of God's promise to set everything back the way it was supposed to be. After that promise, we, the, the narrative moves on, and we begin to see several chapters in Genesis of, a, of what life outside the garden consists of. What's it mean to live life outside of fellowship with God? Eventually, that results in a global flood because evil and sinfulness has resulted and, and reached a height where God says, all right, this is done. I'm finished with this. I've had enough. 
I'm going to drown everybody, but I'm going to spare one individual. By my grace, Noah becomes a different kind of individual, a righteous individual. And, and because of that, this, the promise of the seed will continue through Noah's line. The promise of the rainbow, the olive branch, and the dove representing the finding of land and the end of the flood. And then, a few years later in history, a few generations later, God actually begins to initiate His plan to keep that promise in human history. And He does that through a man named Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac. And then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons who rise up to become the heads of and the fathers and sire the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And one of those sons is a man named Joseph. If you were here with us last week, we saw the, the overview of his life, how he goes through the good, the bad, and the ugly, that there are all kinds of things that he goes through. But at the end of his life, what ends up happening, as is really exemplified in, in this picture of the sheaves up here, is that people bow down to him because he becomes a very powerful man. And so with all the good, all the bad, all the ugly of Joseph's life, he ends up in Egypt and at the pinnacle of his life is the second most powerful man in the world. Enter then his brothers who have betrayed him, who have done him wrong, who are coming in from a famine and seeking rescue, seeking grain, seeking a way to keep themselves alive. And at the end of that story, we find Joseph having forgiven his brothers, Israel and his family all coming to live in Egypt in the relative safety of that country to escape the flood. And when we end Genesis, that's where it is. God's people preserved. God's promise kept. I will keep my people safe. And I will do that because I love them and because I promised that it was through their line that I would fulfill this first promise that I made to Adam and Eve to send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and to set everything back in its right place. And so at the end of Genesis, that's where they are. In Egypt, safe under the care of a kind Pharaoh who is benevolent toward them largely because of his relationship with their brother Joseph. And this morning, we begin to shift gears because we are going to wake up in a different kind of world. If we fast forward just a few hundred years, we begin to see that things have changed. Take a look at Exodus chapter 1. It says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Okay, so this is several generations later, perhaps. You have a pharaoh who rises up in Egypt, and he says, I don't know who this Joseph character is. I'm unfamiliar with the way in which he and his people came into the country. But I do know this, there's a lot of people here that I don't think belong here, and I'm going to have to do something about it. He said to his people, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, which is another way of saying they made them slaves in their own country. A lot of the things, a lot of the major projects that were done and, and, and construction projects that were done in that time period were done by Israelite slaves. Part of that was to build the empire and to put these Israelites, as Pharaoh saw it, in their place. But another part of it was to keep them from getting greater in number. I suppose Pharaoh thought, if I get them to work in enough hours, they won't have time to make babies. But the interesting thing is, there's always seems to be time to make babies. And so they keep growing until Pharaoh finally says, well, I'm going to have to have an ultimate kind of thing here. Solution, a final solution, if you will, to this. Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Adolf Hitler was not the first to have a final solution for the Hebrew people. Pharaoh was. 
And he says, I'm tired of them growing. I'm tired of them taking over. I'm afraid they're going to take over. And as a result of my fear and paranoia, I'm going to take the youngest and most vulnerable, and I'm going to have them drown into the Nile. So there is how we begin this story. Now they're no longer under the leadership of a kind Pharaoh. Now they're under the thumb of the slavery of another Pharaoh, and they're having their children killed. And that's when we're introduced to another biblical character, a man by the name of Moses. And the Bible says of Moses, first of all, he was spared from that slaughter. As an infant, he would have been one of the victims. But his mother, Yaakovet, and his older sister, Miriam, hide him in a basket, send him down the Nile River, where eventually he's discovered by the daughter of Pharaoh himself. And so as a result, Moses doesn't get killed like a lot of those other Hebrew boys. He instead grows up in the palace, surrounded by royalty, and, and basically lives a life of privilege until his early years. Apparently, though, there's still some awareness of who he is and where he came from. And we know that because of the anger that wells up in his soul when he goes out one day and he finds an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave. And while he rightfully responds by trying to uh, find justice for this slave, he wrongfully murders the Egyptian in the process, tries to hide him in the sand, finds out later on he's not the only one who is aware that these things have happened, and afraid that he might be prosecuted, fearing really for his life, he decides to become a fugitive. So the prince becomes a fugitive, and he goes to a place called Midian. And he does that finds a man out there by the name of Jethro, who is destined to become his father-in-law, and spends the next 40 years of his life safe in Midian, tending sheep. So from the age of 40 to the age of about 80, that's where Moses was. Now, if you spend your years from roughly 40 to 80, my understanding, if at least for people in ministry, is that I have entered what could be and should be the prime years of my life. I've got enough experience now that, that there ought to be just a tad bit of wisdom, at least more than there was when I was in my 20s and I started out on this journey. But I'm also not too old to get the job done. And so usually somewhere between about the ages of 45 and 70, that tends to be kind of the sweet spot, particularly for a lot of spiritual leaders. That's Well, Moses is 80, so you figure if he's reached that age, He's probably done, and he probably thinks he's done, doesn't he? He's tended sheep all this time. Uh, he was raised in royalty, but he got away from that, and it's been a quiet life, and, and, and he's, he's had a good life, and he's got a good wife, and he's got a good father-in-law, and everything seems to be going well. But, you know, it's weird how sometimes when you think you're reaching the sunset of your life that the clock starts over. How many of you has that happened for? How many people have I met who are in their 40s who look at me and, say, and they say, Pastor, I really could have sworn that I'd changed my last diaper. And then my wife brings me this stick with these two blue lines on it. And here I go again. Right? Uh, and, and I don't know how many people in their 60s and 70s that will look at me and go, Pastor, I could have sworn I was done with my career. And here I go back to work, either out of financial necessity or, or I feel a call to go back into it or I'm just bored. And, and something happens and there's that change in your life and boom, you're off to the races with something you never thought possible. That starts at Moses' 80th birthday, somewhere right in there. So for those of you who are in your 60s and 70s who are tempted to look at me and go, Pastor, I'm retired. I'm just going to sit and take it easy. I'm going to go to, I'm going to look back at you and I'm going to say, compared to Moses, you're just a baby, so suck it up. All right? You are just getting started. 
And Moses receives his call through a bush in Exodus chapter 3 that is on fire, but it is not consumed. So you imagine going into, you're in the desert, all right, first of all, and, and you're, you're, you're tending to your livestock and everything, and you happen upon this bush that's burning, but there's no ash, there's no residue, it's not being consumed at all. And I don't know about you, but the first thing I would think is, I haven't had enough water today. Right? That something's going on, I'm hallucinating. But then all of a sudden, this bush begins to speak. There's a voice, because the presence of God is there, and ultimately, he says, in chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is God's call upon Moses when he is in his 80s that there's more work to be done. And here's what you're going to do. You're going to go back to Pharaoh. The place where you grew up and spent your early years of life. You're familiar with their system. I'm sending you back to them. I have heard the cries of my people in slavery, and I am going to deliver them out of it, and you will be my instrument to get it done. And Moses then goes back into Egypt, this time not as a prince, but as a prophet. Very different disposition. Princes try to hang on to power. Prophets, they yell at power. That's what they do. And so Moses comes into the halls of Pharaoh, the most powerful nation in the world, led by a narcissistic madman who thinks himself a god in order to deliver to that Pharaoh a message, you need to let my people go. So how do you think Pharaoh responds to that? Yeah, not too well. Not very well at all. And so the result of that is God begins to unleash a series of plagues on the nation of Egypt. There's a couple of things you need to know about these plagues. Number one... This is not mere annoyance that's going on, okay? Uh, occasionally, a stomach bug or something like that will enter my house. Now, thank God we haven't, at least at this point in, in this kind of, this time of the year, had, had to face that, but, but sometimes it'll come. And when it comes with three children, sometimes it'll make three laps, you know, before it leaves. And some of you have been going through there. We had several empty seats at the 9 o'clock this morning. For one reason for that was we've got a lot of sick people right now. Uh, some of our staff have got the flu. Please pray for them. And, and so when you get something like that, you're tempted to use the metaphor plague to describe it. My wife has done that before. I've done that before. What's going on? Don't want to come over here. We've got the plague. And what that means is we're on our third round of stomach flu, and we've been 14 days straight, and there's not been a day yet out of 14 days somebody hasn't been hugging a toilet. Okay? That's where we are. That's annoying. Sometimes it can be very debilitating, it can be very depressing, but it's not a plague. A plague is something that affects you long term. It doesn't affect you for 12 or 24 hours or even a couple of weeks, for those of you that have got that head cold that just won't seem to go away. A plague lasts an entire generation. And so what God is doing here, He's not just, He's not just unleashing gnats and flies and hail and locusts and darkness and blood and all these things on the nation because he's trying to be mean or because he's mad because Pharaoh said no. One of the things you need to read today sometime is the second psalm, which says that God laughs at the wicked. Okay? God, when you tell God no, he doesn't get angry and come back. But he laughs at that. Why in the world would you? He's God. Right? And so he's laughing. This isn't about just being mean and pouring out my vengeance on a guy who thinks himself God. This is about teaching Pharaoh and the Egyptians a very, very crucial lesson. And to do that, what God is doing in the plagues is he is attacking in very strategic manner every single part of the infrastructure of what then was the most powerful nation in the world. So, so when, the, when the 
When the Nile turns to blood, that's not just nasty. That's their water supply and their primary trade route. Gone. Okay? So every bit of that is God strategically saying, I'm going to take the country apart. And I'm going to leave it in ruins. Okay? So imagine if that were to happen here in the panhandle. Let's imagine we get up tomorrow morning and we discover that by some miracle, lightning, well, not a miracle, by some tragedy, lightning has struck every educational institution in this region, both public and private, and there's no more education system as a result. And, uh, yeah, so a couple of high school students just went, woo! Yeah, it, it's, it's not quite as nice as you think it is. But let's imagine for a minute that that happened. Then let's imagine that we heard all the bridges have been blown up. They're all gone. Across the Potomac, across the Shenandoah, severely limiting the ability for us to bring in the supplies that we need, which means about a day later, we're going to get a call from the hospital saying, we're out of supplies. No more bandages, no more sterile needles, no more blood supply. It's all gone. Then we discover the next day that bacteria has hit our water supply, so we no longer have anything to drink. Then about a day or two after that, a solar flare hits and renders every laptop and smartphone in our midst a paperweight. And any automobile that has computerized fuel injection uh, to, to, in order to run its engine is inoperable. So now our transportation, our communication systems, they're gone. Education, agriculture, our ability to feed ourselves here in the panhandle is gone. Our ability to even get somewhere else so that we can get some help is severely limited. When that happens to a region, you don't have society anymore, do you? That is precisely what has happened in Egypt. There is nothing left. That's the first thing you need to know about these plagues. The second thing you need to know is not only is he strategically attacking the infrastructure, but he is strategically denouncing and getting victory over all the gods of Egypt. Take a look at this chart and you begin to see that. Every plague was an attack against a god who supposedly oversaw that part of the cosmos. You remember our Bible begins with the story, in the beginning, God. There's one. There is only one God. There are no other gods. And so what we, what we discover when we get to Egypt is that the Egyptians are polytheists. They believe there is more than one God and that they're regional rulers over specific parts of the cosmos. And so when the plague comes of the Nile turning to blood, that is an attack against Hopi, against Isis, against Kanum, all of whom are either gods and goddesses over the Nile, gods that they prayed to, gods that they sacrificed to. The frogs were a sign of an attack against Heket, who was the goddess of fertility, whom the Egyptians believed was, had the head of a frog. Gnats, flies, death of livestock, all of that is set. Ray, Hathor, Apis, Sekhmet, Sunu, Newt, and Osiris, uh, dealing with the boils and the hail. Ra, who is the sun god being dealt with through locusts and darkness, as well as Horus. And so every single time there's a plague, it's attacking a part of the cosmos that was supposedly under the control of another god. And so God, in all of this, again, he's not just being mean. He's trying to teach a lesson to a very stubborn ruler. And that lesson is, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. Something we'll get to next week when we talk about the Ten Commandments. All of this is designed to bring the most powerful nation in the world to its knees. Because they are not worshiping the one true and living God. With all of that, Pharaoh still refuses to budge. And so God says, there's another plague coming. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. And afterward, he will let you go. This one will work. About midnight, 
I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, and there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or ever will be again. I'm killing the firstborn. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this as well. Number one, you've got to remember that God's promise to Abraham and thus to Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob and the twelve tribes and everyone coming forward, included what we referred to a couple of weeks ago as the principle of reciprocity. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And so you have an Egyptian pharaoh who has said, take the firstborn, take the youngest of the Hebrews, take the most vulnerable of their tribe, and drown them in the Nile. Now you have God responding to that with a reciprocal curse saying, all right, I'm going to kill every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And the lesson here is you don't mess with God's people if you have a brain. That's the lesson. Okay, And what was true of ancient Israel in this time is still true of God's people today. It's one of the reasons that he said in the Old Testament, and it's repeated in the New, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Don't seek revenge for yourselves. You can, there's nothing you can do to get back at that other person, back at that other country, back at that other group that, that even begins to compare with what God will do to them because you are his children, and he's going to take care of you. So that's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we need to know about this particular plague is, well, at least for me, it answers some questions for me. Because I tend to just cut right to the chase and go, what's it going to take to get this done? Right? I go to the doctor occasionally, about once a year. Something happens and I feel like I just got to go to the doctor. And usually, this is kind of the way my, my back and forth goes with, with my GP. He goes, well, let's, let's try this or let's try that. And my response is, What's it going to take to knock this out? Because i got work to do. I want drugs. Okay, You've seen my record. I'm not a pill popper. I don't come in here but about once a year, but I am sick, and I don't have time to be sick. i got a family to provide for. i got a church to pastor. I don't have time for this. What's it going to take? I don't want to play footsie with penicillin. I don't want you to try this, dance with this, flirt with that. What's it going to take? That's what I want. Because tomorrow I need to feel up the snuff. i got stuff to do. That's just the way I'm wired. It's the way I tend to think. Let's figure out what's going to do. So when I look at a story like this, I go, why ten plagues? Why ten plagues? If you're God and you know the future and you know you're going to have to kill the firstborn to get this stubborn rascal to move, then just kill the firstborn and be done with it. I mean, that's me. And, and, and so this text answers a very critical question for me. Why ten plagues? Why in the world would you go and ruin the economic infrastructure of an entire country? Why would you do that? And a few chapters later in chapter 14, we see the reason. God says to Moses, here's what I'm doing behind the scenes. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. I don't know, that, that creates a jolt in some of you, and I'm sorry we don't have time to unpack it today. So you're just going to have to live with mystery for a little while until we come back to this later. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. That's one thing you do need to know. Don't turn that around. Well, Pharaoh really hardened. No, nope, God did this to Pharaoh. So whatever you believe, you got to wrestle with that. That's what the text says. And he will pursue them. In other words, I'm behind all this. And here's the reason why. 
I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. I'm doing the ten plague thing, and I'm not just doing it because I'm mean. I'm doing it because these people are worshiping a false god in their Pharaoh. In their Pharaoh, they're worshiping multiple false gods across the cosmos that they believe exist, that they believe keeps their infrastructure together. So I'm destroying their infrastructure. I'm destroying their country. I'm destroying their their structures of political power because I don't just want the Israelites to know who I am. I want the whole world to know who I am. And this is why I do what I do. Ten plagues resulting, finally, in the death of the firstborn. And accompanying this death of the firstborn is something that we're now introduced to in human history called the Passover. The Passover. In April, I've got a dear friend of mine that's going to be with us, Rabbi Robert Pristoup. Rabbi Pristoup is a dear brother, and he is a brother. He worships the Messiah, as you and I do, but he's a Jewish rabbi who believes Jesus is the Messiah. He leads his congregation every Sabbath. He points them uh, to the Messiah every Sabbath, and he'll be in here speaking to us and unpacking with much more depth than I'm capable of doing today the meaning of the Passover. It's something you don't want to forget. But let's read these passages together. Starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. We'll come back to that later. A male, a year old. You may take it from sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they shall eat it. Okay? This is what they're supposed to do. So inside the house, blood on the outside, and on the inside they shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, intestines, nasty stuff, basically. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Any that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat with your belt fastened. Your sandals on your feet. Okay, don't, don't be laying back like a normal meal that you would have. There's no time for that. Your staff in your hand. This is God's way of saying, eat like a Marine. Okay? Quick. It's coming. You're not going to have long to do this. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see it, I'll pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. In other words, this ain't the only one you're ever going to do. You keep doing this from now in perpetuity throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. This is a terrible and dramatic passage. And it's a passage that forms the foundation of what you and I celebrate every time we hold communion together as a church family. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but our communion, our Lord's Supper, 
finds its origins in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when Jesus, during the very Passover meal that we just heard described, takes the bread and the wine and uses it to point the disciples to himself. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took a cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Passover, Jesus said, points to me. Just like the initial sacrifice in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve are trying to sew fig leaves together, and they cannot cover their nakedness and their sin and their shame, God kills an animal and drapes them in order to cover their nakedness, their sin, and their shame. And that sacrifice and every sacrifice that comes after it, including the ones that the Hebrew children are going to use to put the, door, to put the blood over the, the doorpost and the lintel of their home, is a sign intended to point to the necessity of something called substitutionary atonement. That's a big word. What does that mean? It means atonement is required for sin. Death is the atonement that's required for it. And a substitute must give his own life so that you and I don't have to. All of that is found embedded in this Passover meal. And Jesus said there in 1 Corinthians, it all points to me. So those are the principles that we learned. Death is punishment for rebellion against God. So when Pharaoh rebels and says, I'm not letting the people go, when the Egyptians worship other gods, when the Israelites themselves sin against God, as we will see them do repeated times throughout their history, when all these things happen, death is the only appropriate punishment. The blood over the doorpost isn't just marking the Hebrew people safe. The door over the blood post is saying to God who comes down into the midst, there's already been a death at this house, so I won't cause one. No blood, no forgiveness. The only other option is somebody has to die. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? But it's true. It's true. This is the non-negotiable and inflexible penalty of death, of sin. It's death. Somebody has to die. And this is required for everybody. Either you're going to be like the Egyptians and you're going to pay for it with your own death, or you're going to be like the Hebrews and a substitute is going to absorb the wrath of God that is due to you. Because we have all sinned. Don't get this indication that somehow in this story the Hebrews are the good guys and the Egyptians are the bad guys. That's not the way you need to read this story. Okay, We have in our Western uh, culture and sensibilities this sense that there's good guys and bad guys. I don't know how many Gen Xers i got in front of me, but we got we got any Super Friends fans in the crowd? Maybe a few. Superman, Wonder Woman, a few of you? All right, rest of you are just out of touch. You need to go to YouTube or Netflix or something and encourage you. I mean, high culture stuff I'm talking about. This is good stuff, right? And so Super Friends had a Hall of Justice. That's where all the good guys were. And then they had a Legion of Doom, and that's where all the... Bad guys. Well, yeah, see, you're catching on to this. There's a comic book store right around the corner when you go into Shepherdstown. Just educate yourself. That's all I'm saying. Yes, I am 45 years old. Educate yourself, okay? And, and so um, my middle son, who is now, um, he's now 11, Seth, he's, uh, he's on a superhero kick. He's been on one for about seven years. 
So if we go back to when he was like four or five and he was just getting into this stuff and one day he'd come in dressed as Iron Man, the next day he'd come in dressed as Flash and the next day he'd be Superman. And so, But we were reading through the Bible together and we were reading through something called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Incidentally, if you have kids five and under, that is a phenomenal resource. Uh, and you can Google that, Jesus Storybook Bible. It's a phenomenal resource for you to be able to teach the Bible to your kids. Uh, just a great resource. And we're reading through it and we're, we get to the part where the Israelites cross the Red Sea which comes just not long after the, the story that we're reading this morning. And my son has this hyper-developed sense of justice. Some of you may have kids like that where they're like right and there's wrong and it's always black and white. And sometimes you've got to teach that there are shades of gray sometimes. Sometimes, not all the time. Certainly not as much as our culture would say. Uh, but it's not always this is either black or white, right? And so teaching him how to do that has been somewhat of a challenge. And, and so as we... As we move through this story, he comes to the conclusion that God spares the Israelites. They go across the Red Sea, and then when the Egyptian army gets in there, he brings the, the, the sea back down on top of them, and he drowns all of them. And he looks at me, again, Hall of Justice, Legion of Doom type mentality, because he's reading the Bible through that superhero grid, and he goes, so God killed the bad guys. And I said, yeah, that's, that's what happened. God killed the bad guys. And he said, good, they deserve it. Um, and I said, well, not so fast, buddy. We're all bad guys. And that's when his eyes got really big because it never occurred to him before. And, and part of it being instrumental in my son coming to know Christ some years later was for him to understand he's not a good guy. Neither's his daddy. Neither's his mama. We're all bad people. We all have the same sin nature that caused Pharaoh and the Egyptians to do what they did. We're all bad guys. Every one of us. And the result of that is we're either going to pay for our own sins or a substitute will absorb the wrath of God on our behalf. That, folks, is the essence of the Christian gospel. I know it's nasty. I know it seems ugly. I know it seems harsh and violent. But hear me well. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without substitutionary atoning death, there is no such thing as Christianity. Don't ever let anybody tell you different. Without substitutionary atonement, you and I all go to hell. And we do so rightfully under the just judgment of a wrathful God who is holy and who expects perfection and who is not and will not ever get it out of us. And so we either die by our own sin or our sins are absorbed in a substitute. That's what this text teaches us. That's what it teaches us. Blood has already been spilled and it can be seen clearly on the doorposts of the household. And as a result of that and that alone, no Hebrew child dies that night. And the Hebrew people will be delivered out of Egyptian bondage into a newfound freedom. Let me give you six principles that we learned from this story. Number one, remember God's requirement of perfection. Perfection. There's a reason that this practice called for an unblemished lamb. They would inspect the thing. If you find a blemish, you find an imperfection of any sort, back to the drawing board. Why is that? Because God intended through this right to teach His people, I expect absolute perfection. And I know some of you are already thinking, well, that's not fair. Because nobody's perfect. And that's right, nobody's perfect. We're not now, at least. But see, we once were. God expects perfection because that's how He created us. 
And He expects His created product returned to Him in exactly the same situation and condition as He found it and as He created it. And that's not happening. And so what is a just God to do but to continue to require perfection? Perfection. And we remember through this, we're not, we're not good guys. We're not good guys. All of this points to the fact there's only one way for us to be accepted by God, and that means someone else has to obtain perfection for us. There must be an unblemished lamb. It's not just about spilling blood. It's about spilling perfect blood, unblemished, sinless blood. And so when Christ comes, He comes not just to die, but to live. And to do what the first Adam could not do, to do what you can't do, what I can't do, and that is to live a complete life without sin. The unblemished lamb points to Christ, and we have to remember that is a requirement that God sees us through the lens of the perfection of Christ. Number two, remember the righteousness of God. Remember the righteousness of God. They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. That's what Exodus 12, verse 6 tells us. And again, it's a pretty graphic picture when you think about it, but it is meant to illustrate that the righteousness of God and His holiness are inflexible. Inflexible. And they require a heavy price for sin. They require, first of all, a vicarious death, which is another way of saying someone has to come and give their life not for their own sin, but for the sins of another. And that vicarious death must also be sacrificial. Every time you see the word blood used in a covenantal context like this, it is a metaphor for sacrifice. That's what it's used for. And all of this is necessary for us to have our sins forgiven. You see this all throughout the Old Testament. A couple of weeks we're going to get to Leviticus and we'll see it with much more depth. The various kinds of sacrifices and, and why they were required and how that connects to where you and I live today. Because I, admittedly it's, it's hard to make that connection. But you see it with abundant more clarity there, and all of it points toward the gospel that tells us our only hope is in a substitute who dies in our place. Our only hope is in 2 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells us that he, that is Christ, who knew no sin, unblemished, became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the essence of the gospel. God can look at you and see perfection even though you are not perfect. God can look at you and see sinlessness even though you are sinful. When He looks at you wrapped in the absolute perfection of His Son. And that's what we see here. Number three, remember our slavery to sin. Remember our slavery to sin. With unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. So the unleavened bread I've already explained. Eat like a marine. You're not going to have time. Your deliverance is going to come quickly. Now, these bitter herbs, that's something different. These are herbs that were indigenous to the Egyptian area. And so, forevermore, in perpetuity, generation after generation, the Hebrews are going to they're going to eat these bitter herbs, and they're going to be reminded of where they came from, which is the point. You, we all, if you've traveled abroad ever, or for that matter, even if you've traveled outside this particular part of the United States, you've eaten food that you can only get in that one place, and you've smelled the smells of a, of a major city, like New York. New York City's got its own smell. I don't know if you've noticed that. Washington, D.C. kind of has its own, it engages the senses in a very unique way. Hong Kong, Beijing, Hanoi, where I'll be in a few weeks. It, it all, it, all those cities engage the senses in profoundly different ways, and when I'm in Hanoi, I can close my eyes and know I'm in Hanoi. 
All right? And that's especially true when it comes to the food. When it comes to the food. Our daughter, Gracie, spent the first 18 years of her life in Gansu province in the People's Republic of China. The capital of that province is a city called Lanzhou, about two and a half million people. And they are known. I mean, they are famous all over that country for their noodles. Now, think about that for a minute. This is a city in China known for noodles. That's like a city in Texas known for barbecue. Okay? You know it's got to be good. And we went to Lanzhou, and we have eaten Lanzhou noodles, and they are absolutely amazing. The smell is amazing. And then we would come back home, and, and there's a place in Ellicott City that we call it Little Asia. There's Korean and Vietnamese and Chinese, just restaurants everywhere, grocery stores, because that's where those minority communities kind of tend to hang out where we used to live. And we would go into those places, and I would go into some of those Asian shops, and I could smell the Lanzhou noodle stuff would hit me in the nostrils, and I could close my eyes, and it was almost like I was there. You ever had an experience like that? There's something about the way our senses engage a place, and then we remember that place. That's what these bitter herbs were intended to do, to remind them not of a good or a pleasant place, but of a bad place where they had once been. A place of slavery, a place of oppression. You know, you can imagine as we get later into the narrative, we'll see as they're wandering in the wilderness, they're always complaining to Moses about, why, why can't we just go back to Egypt But every year at Passover, they'd eat those bitter herbs and be reminded through that, you know what, it could be worse. It could be worse. Those bitter herbs remind them of a former slavery. And the principle in that is is really quite simple. Always remember where you came from. It, It keeps you from having pride issues. It keeps you from looking at others and thinking yourself better than them if you remember where you came from. Paul used to refer to himself as the chief of sinners. His ministry was as effective as it was, at least partly, because he never forgot what it was like to be separated from God. He never forgot that. And we shouldn't forget that either. Number four, remember God's judgment of unbelievers. Remember his judgment of unbelievers. Look at verse 12 again. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The Israelites are spared, but don't, don't ever forget in this story, the Egyptians are not. And you and I are surrounded, surrounded by people who have not found the full freedom and forgiveness of a life in Christ. And they, like the Egyptians, stand under the judgment of a holy God. You know, the story of the Passover, it, when you read it in a Jesus storybook Bible, it looks, looks really cool. They're coming out of freedom. That long road out of Egypt into freedom was not a pleasant road. Think about everything that they'd been through prior to that moment. Think about the blood in the Nile. Think about the hail, the locusts, the flies, the frogs, the darkness, the boils. None of that personally touched them because they were protected by God, but they were surrounded by it. Perpetually, And similarly, you and I are surrounded by death, aren't we? It's not as obvious to us. We live in a Western, scientifically advanced society with our CT scans and our Botox and our beauty helps and all these different kinds of things that keep us looking young and healthy and, you know, and, and, and diabetes medication so we can keep eating donuts and all, just all kind of we got all this technology that allows us to just be able to do a lot of stuff, but we still die, don't we? The death rate is still one per person. 
And we're reminded that of that every single day, whether it is the, the, the elements that sap our hair color away once we get to a certain age, to, to the bacteria that eventually will grind every single one of us to a migratory pulp, every one of us. Somewhere right now on planet Earth, there is a grave waiting for your corpse. Did you know that? And it's waiting for me too. Death is coming. Death is coming. And our only hope is that someone has absorbed the wrath of God in our place so that on the other side of death, we don't just see more death. And that road out of Egypt wasn't pleasant. Walking past barren fields, walking through blood-soaked areas, walking past the dead carcasses of all the cattle that died, looking at fly carcasses and frog carcasses and, and, and the smell and the stench in the air. I mean, you don't even go outside your door. There's flies all over the dried blood on the outside of your own door, and you've got to swat that away. And then in the midst of all of that hypersensitivity and sensory experience that's engaging your smell and your sight and your taste and, 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 your, and your hearing, and you wish it didn't, you wish you could just get out on the other side of it. You hear now on top of it the uncontrollable shrieks of parents who are waking up to find they don't have their children anymore. That is the context in which freedom comes to the Israelites. But they are surrounded by death and God never lets them forget that. Because you and I are surrounded as well by people who are dying in a world that is dying and without hope except for the person and the work of Jesus. We have their hope. We need to be giving them their hope. Number five, remember God's provision for his people. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Paul tells us in the New Testament that it is Jesus who ultimately made peace through the blood of his cross. Later on, he will say in the second chapter of Colossians, he canceled out our certificate of debt, having nailed it to a cross. God provided for you and for me. And finally... Remember God's command to proclaim His deliverance. Look at verse 14. Throughout your generations is a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. That's what He said to the Israelites. And as we transition into the New Testament, Jesus tells those of us who are part of His body, the bride of Christ, something very, very similar. Do this. In doing this, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Passover wasn't just a memorial meal. It was a way of preaching. It was a way of proclaiming the good news of a great God who doesn't just want the Israelites, but the whole world to worship Him and to serve Him as they should. And when we look back on that moment, we remember the provision He made for our salvation. When we think of all the people around us who need that provision, we should see this as a motivation to proclaim Him as that Passover lamb. It's hard to look at this. And see love, isn't it? I mean, from our culture, let's just be honest. It's been 3,500 years. We live on the other side of the world. We're in a vastly different culture. This covenant has been fulfilled. So there's no more need for sacrifice. So it's not like we have to do this anymore. But it's been thousands of years since God's people have been bound within this particular covenant. And so to look back on this bloody mess, you, love tends to be the last thing you'd see. And I get that. I get that. We live in a Valentine's Day sort of expression when it comes to love. Valentine's Day is coming on Tuesday. Guys, you got it? You ready? You ready? Yeah. I'm, I'm seeing this. Uh-oh. Yeah. All right. Make a note right now. Don't want to get you in trouble with your woman. All right? Do that. And, and we, we do. We celebrate Valentine's Day. We don't go overboard with it. But the, the guy, all the, boy, all the rainy boys give the rainy women gifts. And it doesn't go the other way around because it's 
just for our home, it's just part of the way I'm trying to teach my boys. This is what men do. They go, they give, and the women are the receivers on this. And so just trying to teach them to be men, this is part of how we do that. But we'll have a Valentine's Day celebration. I don't know if we'll have time to go out to eat that night, but, but there will be something, right? And, and we'll celebrate it. And, um, and I look at that kind of thing, the pink cards and the, and the, the, the boxes of chocolates and the roses and all this, and it's really pretty. And I look at that and I compare it with the story we just read. It, it's weird, isn't it, to see love in both of those. And I actually see more in this one. Because from our culture, it's just strange. I mean, I've, I, have, I have struggled internally after 25-plus years of both dating and married life with Amy Rainey, of what to do for her for Valentine's Day. I really have, right? Should it be candy? Should it be roses? Should it be something? Should I take her to dinner? Should we go somewhere, like on a trip or weekend or something like that? Never, guys, has it ever entered my mind when I've had that internal struggle to go to, to think to myself, I know exactly what I'm going to do this year. I'm going to cut the head off a sheep and put it in a box and give it to her. That, that's never entered my mind. Never thought about that. And you shouldn't think about that either, all right? You laugh. Some of you are laughing like, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, don't, don't go doing that on my account, okay? But this is the love of God. You've got to remember, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. That's another way of saying if there's no shedding of blood, there's no love. There's no grace. There's no mercy. So when you look at this, don't just see the vengeful wrath of a holy God. You need to see a God who loved you enough to send His Son, the ultimate Passover lamb, the ultimate Israelite, so that you don't have to be condemned. So that the blood uh, for your sin is not required at your own hands, but it is absorbed in a substitute who loved you enough to go to the cross and bear your sins. That's what this teaches us. This is the love of God. When you look at that, I know it's strange, but you will find no greater expression of the love of God than in the Passover. Let me close with a poem. This is from F.M. Lehman. It's an old hymn, actually, but I just found it interesting. And as I read it, again, I want you to think about this. I want you to think about, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And not see only wrath and nastiness, and vengeance, and violence. But to see this, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong, it shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Forgiveness is bloody because it always costs somebody something. But we have a God who loves us enough to write it in His own blood. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the greatest news in the world that from the perspective of our own culture and our own disposition seems to come from a really weird place. And yet, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that your people would see it clearly today. And I pray they would rejoice in it. And I pray that those who don't know you would find peace in it, forgiveness, joy, grace, love, in the ultimate Passover lamb who gave his life. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.